You're listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. As the baby boomer generation gets older, we're taking our health very seriously. In your primary care practice, every day you're likely seeing more and more sports-related injuries. But what do you really know about treating them, and how has that changed since we went to medical school? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Robert Aftekar. Dr. Aftekar is an orthopedic surgeon and founding partner in the Arthritis and Orthopedic Medical Clinic in Los Gatos, California. He's been in private practice since 1975, specializing in sports injuries, arthroscopy, and arthritis and joint replacements. Today we're discussing sports-related injuries that you may see in your practice. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today, Dr. Aptekar. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank you, Shira. So tell me, what are some of the common injuries you see in private practice, even if you're not an orthopedic surgeon, that might involve the elbow, the knee, the foot? What do you see often? The most common things we see are around the elbow and the knee. And that's usually tennis elbow or golfer's elbow around the upper extremity. And in the lower extremity, injuries to the kneecap and tendon injuries around the joint. So somebody comes in and they have symptoms of tennis elbow. Can you tell us exactly what that is and how you treat it? Tennis elbow is a pain on the outside of the elbow, the lateral epicondyle. And usually people are quite uncomfortable in daily activities, which brings them in as opposed to even playing tennis. Most people that I see with so-called tennis elbow are in fact not tennis players. Most of them are people who are using their arms in typing work and other uh, desk type jobs, but they're doing it all day long and it's like running a marathon with your elbow and arms. And so there is a lot of tension through the muscle and the tendon at the lateral epicondyle. It is most frequently seen actually in um, backhand in tennis, and that's how it got its name. And how do you treat it? First and foremost is to use a strap. There are many what are called counterforce braces that you can buy for $15 at the drugstore or the sports store that put pressure over the lateral epicondyle. And this prevents or at least deflects the muscle from its normal attachment and disperses the forces over a wider area. So instead of the muscle pulling only on that one or two centimeter area on the lateral epicondyle, it's diffused over a larger surface, and so the pressure is not as high, and the pain tends to go away. I would say 75% of the people that I see with tennis elbow will get better if they use the counterforce brace, but on a regular basis. I understand golfers get injuries, too. What do you see with people who play golf? Well, actually, the other side of the elbow, the medial epicondyle, has been affectionately known as golfer's elbow. And it's the same process. The muscle on the flexor surface of the forearm is pulling against the medial epicondyle, and you get the same kind of pain. So the treatment is the same. You rotate the brace, and most of these braces have a little pad on them that put the force through this little uh, air-filled or gel-filled pad and deflect the forces. And you can do that on the medial epicondyle as well. And the braces, actually, most of them will rotate on either side, the medial or the lateral side of the elbow. 
How does a non-professional athlete get a rotator cuff tear, and how do you treat it? Well, most rotator cuff injuries actually, again, are from overhead work. Probably the most common people that I see with rotator cuff tears are, are laborers that are uh, working at shoulder level and above, and also office workers. That's one of the reasons why we recommend that offices have these kick step stools that they can move around so that if they're comfortable for people to use, they can step up rather than lifting over their head to pull files down or boxes down. And laborers will also get it when they're using their arms overhead in a forceful motion. Studies show that actually 50% of people at age 50 have some degree of rotator cuff tearing. 70% at age 70. But most people aren't hurting. And so it's obvious that the tear in and of itself is not the reason why they are having the pain. The tear is there, and something that they're doing is aggravating this thin or warned area. Now, that differentiates it from someone that has one sudden violent injury and literally can pull the rotator cuff off its insertion on the greater tuberosity. The, the common sign for a rotator cuff injury is to do an abduction test as if you were holding a beer can with your thumb up in the air, rotate the beer can downward. And that motion rubs the rotator cuff on the undersurface of the acromion, and that's kind of a danger sign. And if you're not an orthopedic surgeon, obviously by that point you refer the patient in, but how then do you treat it? As an orthopedic surgeon, the first thing is to document the problem. Now, I would, in addition to using a non-steroid anti-inflammatory medication, would consider using a subacromial injection. And it's important to get x-rays on those patients at the very first visit they're in the orthopedist's office because one of the things that's common is having calcific deposits. So that, that calcific tendonitis can actually be broken up with a needle. You can take a local anesthetic, inject it into the space, and then you can actually feel with the needle the roughness, the calcium deposits that are there if you can see them on x-ray. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Robert Aptekar, an orthopedic surgeon, and we're discussing sports medicine in the office practice, what you'll commonly see and how you'll treat it. So tell me, let's talk a little bit about back pain. I mean, that could be a whole show in itself, but when is back pain or hip pain alarming? What are danger signs, and when is it chronic? What's your approach? I generally find out what kind of activities you're doing. Many times people will volunteer that they, they're pretty sure that one particular activity that either aggravated the pain or started it up in the first place. There are unusual situations with contact sports that sometimes people will get stress fractures in the low back, but that's very unusual. Most back pain as a result of athletic endeavors is just pushing yourself too far too fast, and by doing stretching exercises, and I recommend yoga-type exercises quite often to patients, um, because I think that uh, doing the stretches is very valuable in loosening up the back. You emphasize both the flexion and the extension side, so doing sit-up or crunch-type uh, exercises on the stomach side, and hyperextension exercises when they're lying prone 
and lifting up. Now, when I went to medical school, part of that treatment was three days of bed rest with your knees flexed up in bed. And I understand the literature since then has changed. What do you, what should you recommend patients coming in the office with back pain after you've ruled out that there's anything more significant going on? We know now that three days of bed rest is counterproductive. Actually, what we should be doing is walking and staying active. And that's been shown numerous times. The worst thing we can do is put people to bed and have them stay there because then you have to worry about mobilizing them again. Staying and encouraging people to be as active as they possibly can within the limits of their pain is the best way to approach that problem. So for injuries that happen on the job, they may not be able to go back to the heavy lifting or what they're doing, but certainly then people that are seeing them for purposes of workman's comp should be telling them, go back to work or go back to moving around and doing some form of work, correct? I think that once we know that there's no complicating injury, that it is very possible to condition people and get them back to work. And I think that would even include, with appropriate training and exercise, getting back to heavy-duty laboring. I've seen it many times. It's a matter of getting people over an acute episode. We now think, although sometimes bulging discs are a sign of trouble from direct pressure against the nerve, there are also a very strong possibility that a back injury is associated with chemical releases of uh, different substances that are causing the pain rather than any direct problem with pressure from the disc. Now, you mentioned warning signs or other things you look for to know that it's a more severe back injury. Remind us what those red flags are. Well, the most important red flag would be something down the leg pain shooting down the leg, numbness down the leg, weakness in a leg, difficulty standing on heels or standing on toes, because that usually means there's enough weakness that they can't support themselves well. And I think, obviously, something associated with a constipation or inability to void would be uh, a clear red flag that trouble is brewing. What about stress factors? Do working people who exercise on weekends, are they prone to stress fractures? Actually, the most common scenario for a stress fracture are young people um, and usually teenage girls who don't have regular periods or who have poor eating habits. But it is possible in almost any age group, including one of my orthopedic colleagues who did so much running, he ended up with a stress fracture of his hip. And so I think if there's unexplained pain and a normal x-ray that could be repeated in three or four weeks, then I think you need to investigate further to consider whether or not there is a stress fracture. And you need to do that either with an MRI or a bone scan. The most common stress fractures we see would be in the foot, in the metatarsal, or in the tibia, and the third would be in the, uh, in the femur or the hip joint. What about the use of steroids? Just as our athletes and the professional organizations are using steroids, there's some carryover to kids even in high school using steroids. Have you seen this? And uh, what do you say to them? Well, I say best to stay away. Steroids were, when they were first brought out in the 1950s, were enough to give the discoverer the Nobel Prize. But after they started using them widely, we discovered that they had tremendous number of complications. 
So steroids by injection, judiciously used, are appropriate. The androgenic steroids, the kinds that muscle builders or weightlifters are trying to use, are very dangerous. And I have seen people with liver damage, with testicular atrophy, with uh, gynecomastia, and with uh, strii and very weak muscles because unless you're constantly training and trying to build up those muscles, those are seriously wasting to the muscles. Thank you very much. I want to thank Dr. Robert Aptekar, who's been our guest. We've been discussing sports medicine issues that you'll see in office practice. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.